Believe it or not, it is Tuesday, September 28th. This is the macro setup. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my D, what is DF? Oh, dear friend, Dan Nathan. I knew what it meant. I'm getting around. Today's episode is being brought to you by our presenting sponsors, IGUS, one of the fastest growing Forex dealers in North America. And oh, by the way, we're going to be joined by the great Daniela Sabine, Hawthorne market analyst with IG in just a few minutes. And of course, our friends at Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage virtual meetings. What, Dan? That matter. That matter for the top companies around the world. Dan, how are you? You can tell I'm geeked up. By the way, yeah. this is the last uh, macro setup in the month of September. I like that. It's flying by, which means that we are a year into the macro setup. And I want to thank our sponsors. Obviously, Dan, take it away. How are you? Yeah, thanks to Nadex. Thanks to IGUS. It's been a year and it's amazing. I mean, here we are, guy, coming up on the end of Q3. And it looked like smooth sailing ah. for most for most markets here, right? But we got that little September swoon. I mean, last week's market action, at least in the major U.S. Uh, equity indices, was kind of interesting. A lot of people wanted to kind of put a pin in it Monday morning, right, when it looked like it was going to fall apart. And then we had that rip-roaring rally off of those lows. But what I think is really interesting is that the markets for the first time in a while after a peak-to-trough decline of about 5% did not have a 5% closing low, though, okay? They did not make a new high in the markets, which we've become very accustomed to. But a lot of things are going on here. For the first time, there are some macro signals that don't speak to great things for stocks. Do you agree for that, Guy? I do agree to that. But, you know, yes, absolutely, I agree with that. But quite frankly, and you know this, if I'm being honest, all those things that you're seeing we're talking about, a lot of those things have been in place for quite some time. For whatever reason, the market hasn't cared. But Again, you know, I don't know why it is the market decides it wants to take notice. Clearly, over the last couple of weeks, it has, which takes us to what we like to call our top three. Uh, I'm going to speak to them, Dan, and then we're going to sort of drill down here. And the reason I want to do this, because there's one thing I would change here. Please bear with me. Uh, the first one, September stock swoon. Each one of those words starts with the letter S, September stock swoon. I like that. Obviously, we're seeing that in uh, spades today. Number two is the rate rampage. Uh, both those things start with the letter R. But number three is a dollar breakout. <laughs> See, now, if I were doing this, and Amanda is fantastic, I would have been dollars dominance. Then we would have had the triple uh, letters, double letters, double letters. But it doesn't matter wait, wait, guy, because are you, the point is well taken. Are you trying to introduce a, a, a new uh, sponsor, possibly PBS? This is like the Sesame Street of, of macro trading here. Um, well, yes. Uh, listen, that's a good listen. Why not bring them in? We could do some financial literacy for the PBS crowd. Anyway, all those things are important. They're clearly important. They're all interconnected. Um, listen, you know what I think is the most important out of these three. It's the move in rates, which has been epic over the last couple of weeks. And as we're doing this right now, you have both Fed uh, Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen speaking Capitol Hill about a number of different things. Um, I don't think they're necessarily assuaging the concerns of market participants, though. Yeah, well, you know, you've been saying this on different uh, points of this year, depending upon what rates we're doing, that market participants will take matters into their own hands, right? And so earlier this year in Q1, when most market participants felt pretty good with the vaccine rollout, that we were going to be on the other side of the pandemic at this point in the year, rates started to rally. And you called a rally. from We started the macro setup the first week of January, and you said, I see the 10-year going to 2% by the end of the year. It almost got 
got there by late March, right? We were 1.77%. And at that point, you know, the whole narrative was that growth was going to be inflecting. We were going to get past the pandemic. We have this global reflation trade and rates should reflect that because central banks were going to take their pedal off the metal as it relates to quantitative easing and the like. And we could see a clearer path towards rate increases. Well, COVID Delta variant kind of put a monkey wrench into that, right? When you think about all of the bottlenecks that we've had with supply chains, you've been talking about the fact that the Fed has it wrong about prices, about inflation. And I think what's going on now, and I think you probably agree with me, is that the rates market are taking it a bit more seriously. They're basically saying the Fed is wrong or the Fed's going to have to act pretty soon. No question about it. Now, the hope there clearly is the fact that if the Fed is wrong, uh, it's because we're seeing growth manifesting itself in all different areas. That would be obviously best case scenario, in my opinion, that there actually is the, co- the, the commensurate growth to back up this rate move. But if it's not and if it's something else, then we're in a real problem. And listen, Dan, Danny Moses has talked about this for a while. You've brought it up. This yeah. concern about stagflation where the inflation part is prices going higher, but the stag part is the fact that the economy is going nowhere. If anywhere. And that's really concerning because I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it here again. I don't think the Fed has any arrows in their quiver to combat that. Yeah. Well, let's think about the stock markets right here, because I think um, equity investors are kind of coming to your uh, way of thought here. And, you know, Guy, you and I have been highlighting, you know, the S&P 500 banging up against resistance. I do think it's really interesting, Guy. September 2nd, 2020. Okay, so about almost 13 months ago, Mm -hmm. the S&P 500 topped out after a big rally in August and went down, I think, about 10 or 11 percent over the next few weeks. Well, you know what the all time high uh, this year was in 2021, September 2nd, much higher than where it was, obviously, in 2020. And we had that break of support from the October low, which I think is kind of interesting. I know a lot of uh, investors and traders were tracking the 50-day moving average where the S&P 500 found some support. Well, last week, we broke below that. What I think is really interesting, prior support becomes what, guy? This is a little Resistance. Yeah. Resistance. resistance. I like when you ask me questions that I know the answer to. Yeah. and and, And so on that break, we had this really nice bounce over the last week, but yesterday we just couldn't get back above it. So you see the technical resistance there. Um, The first level was going back to September 2020 and we failed and now we're below support and now we have new resistance. And I know what's staring right at you, Guy. You've been talking about it. Which line are you focused on to the downside? That would be the 200-day moving average, which as we speak comes in around 4130 or so, as I've mentioned a number of times. The number increases by about ish five points a day or thereabouts. So obviously that's going to continue to move higher. I've said for months, if not longer, that I thought it was absolutely necessary for at some point for us to go and take a look at this. We haven't seen it for over now a year, which is pretty remarkable. Mean reversion suggests just by definition, this should have happened along the way. We haven't seen it. Now, I would also submit this is probably the healthiest possible outcome for the market that if we if and when we do get there, you're going to be seen to flush a lot of people out. It's going to reset things. I think all important. A lot of people would say you're nuts, which people tell me all the time. What I will also say in terms of your hearkening uh, back to last September, the pattern looks uh, hauntingly similar to what we saw 
13 or so months ago. I think that move to 4130 makes sense for a number of different reasons. Yeah. And quite frankly, given what we're seeing, I think we're pretty much in the midst of it right now, Dan. Yeah. So on a big down day like today, where we have the NASDAQ down about 2% and the S&P down 1.5%, you look at the underperformance um, to the downside, right? And the NASDAQ, look at the NASDAQ 100 right here. We know why, right? Five or six stocks make up about half the weight of this index of 100 stocks. And I think, you know, the line here are a little different guy. When you think about the uptrend that the NDX has been in from its May lows, it had this huge, um, it felt like just a runaway breakout here. Well, we've broken that uptrend right now. We're contending with last week's low already. The S&P is not doing that. And if you look at the breakout level from the spring, it really brings you right back to that 200-day moving average. And what I think is most interesting, and this goes back to the rate conversation that we were just having, in Q1, when rates were at their high in the 10-year, the NASDAQ in particular was really underperforming, right? So high growth, high valuation stocks were looking less attractive as investors were kind of rotating into more GDP sensitive, cyclical sort of names. And I guess high valuations with higher rates look less attractive. You want a GDP sensitive sort of um, name. So I, I think the NDX is really interesting and the one to keep an eye on. And from a technical basis, I mean, there's a cr really clear support level if you're looking to reload on some of your favorite mega cap names. No question. 13950 for you playing our home game in the NDX. That's where that support comes in. It's also where that 200-day moving average is going to come in. And this is called the macro setup. We don't want to get all that granular in terms of individual stocks. But I will say this. Um, clearly, the Chinese are trying to accomplish something. I think I understand what their end game is. But I guess the point I'm making is I think it might start to filter its way into some of the these names that have basically driven the NASDAQ for the last couple of years. Again, Apple being the one in the crosshairs. So if Apple sort of trades below 142, again, I'm not looking for that chart. I'm just speaking to the number. Then you got to get a little bit concerned. Obviously, Facebook is facing its own issues. Uh, Amazon, some bits and spits and starts along the way. But those that F MAGA comp that you, you talked about for so long, that's been the driver of this chart. If that were to sort of give it up a bit, I think that 13,950 is in the crosshairs. But the most economically sensitive group is the Russell, and that's what we talked about. And that's still trying to figure out what it wants. Does it want higher yields, uh, would be suggestive, again, of economic activity? Or does it want yields to sort of stay right around that, you know, 135 to 140 level? I'm not sure. Quite frankly, if you look at this, folks, Mark chart suggests it's not sure as well, because we've been in this sideways action literally since the end of January of this year. Yeah, it's really fascinating here. I mean, just the kind of uh, consolidation. And then on a day like today, where you have rates higher and high valuation tech names lower, the S&P, um, you know, being held up a little bit by the relative outperformance in some of those cyclically sensitive groups or some of those groups that are very rate sensitive. So you're seeing the same thing in the Russell. I just think for our macro setup audience here, the NDX, the QQQ, you know, or, or related sort of contracts and indices and ETFs around it seems to be a great trading vehicle because when that get really oversold, you know, you're going to have a violent bounce on a day like today, when I see an alphabet, which has really outperformed many of its mega cap tech peers, down 3% at its lows, and Microsoft, same thing, and the stories 
feel pristine, right? It tells you we're getting a little panicky. So at some point we might have a follow through on after a day like today, and then things feel like they just got out of order. And then you're probably likely in that moment where you get a sort of a V reversal. The Russell 2000 is just not giving you those sorts of trading opportunities. You would agree with that, right? Guys? I would hundred percent agree with that. I think a lot, again, fits and starts along the way without question, false breakouts, false breakdowns. And here we are basically at these levels, is where we started the year at. Again, I'll submit. I don't. I'm not quite sure that this index or the stocks that comprise this index know what it wants. It's really struggling with yields, which to me, yields and dollar are the most important things. This is why we're going to take a look at it now. I mean, ten-year yields. You drew that trend line, that support line, um, that uptrend line. We talked about it last week. We've actually talked about it for a few weeks. Obviously, bounced off that. Now it's. Now you're sort of in the prove me zone, right? Now that you've yeah. gotten through this one and a half level, to me, if you think rates are going higher, which I find myself in that camp all year, now it's clearly got to get through that 175 level in a meaningful way. Now the, all the onus is on the rate bulls or the bond bears, if that makes sense to you, Dan. Yeah, and it, it makes sense to go back and look 10 years. And you and I have been talking about this a little bit. I mean, those were thought to be generational lows around 1.5%, right? In the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield going back to 2012, going back to 2016, going back to 2019 before we broke there. So here we are. We're kind of contending with that 10-year support level. Obviously, prior support becomes resistance. We're through there. Let's see. You know, We went through there, guy, earlier there. But I think this chart is pretty fascinating. And I think we just bring this up, the long-term chart, the 30-year. What's really clear, it's upper left, bottom right, man. And mm -hmm. we went to zero. I think one of the most fascinating things in the year 2020 was that we saw things go to zero. Some things go below zero. And we're going to talk to Crude in a second. I just want to just make the point, though, that when you have this sort of trajectory in rates, all of these macro assets, like you mentioned before, they are tied. We can go back and look at a little history here and see what happens when rates start to go lower. One of the main reasons that the Fed in particular institutes all these crazy sort of quantitative easing is they're trying to push down rates and keep them low, right? And so when you look at what's the one thing, guy, that we're going to get to right here, what are they also trying to do is suppress the value of the U.S. Dollar. No question about it. And that 30-year chart, is it's critical to look at because we're in a 30 year downtrend, but it also suggests yeah. that rates still have moved to the upside. But here's the dollar we need to talk about because the dollar is actually breaking out. That was number three in our list of things, the dollar's dominance. We'll change the graphic in post-pro, as they say. But <laughs> here we are breaking through this 94 and a half, 94 and three-quarter level. It appears as though we're about to do it. And that, to me, is, listen, that's great if you're a citizen. Uh, a stronger dollar is great for your buying power, and it mitigates some of the inflationary fears that we're seeing. It's horrible if you're a multinational because we've said it a number of times. A stronger dollar is a wrecking ball for markets. And here we are at the midst of a dollar that appears to be breaking out. Danielle will have thoughts, I'm sure. But just looking at this, Dan, this is suggestive that dollar wants to go higher from here. Yeah, well, again, this goes back to what we're talking about is that you have investors or at least bond investors selling bonds and taking matters into their own hands, right? They're just basically think rates should be higher. Now, we've seen that before in 2021, and we know that it didn't end particularly well because just as people were kind of scratching their head at the velocity of the move in Q1 to the upside, people were doing the same thing in Q2 and Q3 to the move to the downside when that yield hit 1.13 on two occasions. So, 
let's just kind of, you know, think about this near term breakout. Obviously, the one year high is up there just below 95 in the Dixie. We know that half of that is the euro. And I think Danielle will speak to that. But kind of zooming out a little on the dollar, on the U.S. dollar index, these are the levels that we've talked about, you know, that it's kind of held going back, um, you know, four years or so. And I just want to highlight that period in 2014, Guy, when we saw the Dixie go from basically 80 to about 100 in a straight line, literally in a straight line. And what happened? The Fed started contemplating a taper, right, of their bond purchases. And then they started moving up the expectations for rate hikes. So I'm not saying that past performance is indicative of future sort of uh, price action here. That's what we have to go on. And I just got to make the point here that looks like some pretty decent support. But what are the knock-on effects if the dollar were to kind of rip above 95 and get back towards those highs, guy, that we saw just as the pandemic was unfolding? I don't think it's going to be particularly good for equities. Uh, Historically, it would would be suggested that it's going to obviously create a huge headwind for U.S. multinationals. And we'll see. I think that's one of the concerns that's going on in the market now. The other concern has to sort of manifest itself around commodities, specifically the mother of all commodities, which is crude oil. You know, this is a shorter term chart, which suggests we're back to those levels that we broke down from. But, Dan, the longer term chart is really what we need to look at, because that speaks to what's going on here. You know, this is a 13-year downtrend that we have talked about. The crude has been in. It traded up to it, seemingly failed over the summer. But here we are approaching it again. I've said it a number of times. I think we break through. Uh, I think you think we fail, which is fine. That's what makes markets. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Yeah. But clearly things are going on in the energy world right now. Yeah, you say that, but you're putting, you know, letters in my mouth. I tweeted that yesterday. Guy thinks we break out. I think we break down. We were talking about CNBC's fast money. I mean, I don't have a strong fundamental view on crude. I get the whole idea that there's this pent up demand. And once we have some of these shipping, you know, bottlenecks fixed and and China's reopening and supply chains are running more smoothly, that we're going to have demand for it. But I guess this goes back to to rates and it goes back to the dollar. If the dollar is going to rally, if rates are going higher, I go back to 2014 when we had that dollar move. What happened there? Crude topped out, even though we were in a rip-roaring economy back then and still very accommodative global rates, and crude got destroyed. I mean, in Mm -hmm. 2014 and 2015, crude went down 65% as the dollar rallied, as rates went higher, and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was as high as 3%. Well, here we are. We're half of that right now. So that's really my technical take there. Let's go to your gold. You kind of started in this business um, as a trader of the shiny metal here, Guy Adami. This is your Yeah, in the 80s. Of course, that was the 1880s. But I mean, you know, with gold standard, we used to use the coins. It was hard on the pockets. It's interesting that seamstresses did so well during yeah. those times. They had to stitch up the pockets, which were laden from holes from those heavy coins. With that said, listen, gold can't get out of its own way here. Danielle will speak to this. I've tried to maintain a bullish thesis for a myriad of different reasons, none of which have come to fruition. Gold just goes nowhere, if not lower. I think you're at pretty critical levels here. I think 1650 or so is going to be sort of your you know, line of demarcation Quite frankly, the way the dollar is trading and behaving and the way rates are behaving, I, my sense is we're going to get there. Probably good to look at a little longer term chart. gives you a better picture. Again, traded up to those levels August of last year. It felt like we were off to the races in retrospect. We basically might have put in the mother of all double tops. I know not within the dollar, but this, again, just looking at this, it's suggestive of the levels we topped out from somewhere in 2011 and the levels we topped out the summer of last year, Dan. 
Yeah, I just feel like the incremental buyer of, let's say, physical gold or, or, or things that represent gold for inflation fears, which has really been one of the major cases as a store of value, right, over the last, let's call it 50 years or something like that, actually hundreds of years for all intents and purposes. But in the modern um, financial you know, age, um, I think that incremental buyer is going to digital gold, you know, and, and again, you know, Bitcoin at one trillion dollars is, you know, less than, you know, it's low single digits percentage, right, of gold gold that's held for those same purposes. But if that gets more adoption, I think money comes out of physical gold, shiny gold and into digital gold. And that uptrend that it just broke over the last few years, that's really nasty guy. And so we're going to see what happens right now, you know, with Bitcoin up a few hundred percent year over year, you'd say, well, that is acting as a inflation hedge of inflation is the worry here. Um, so that's kind of my take. I- I'm a seller of gold, buyer of Bitcoin um, on, uh, on declines here. All right, guy, we got to do it. We got to a point here. You and I have just kind of waxed poetically about mm-hmm. a lot of this macro stuff, but let's bring in Daniela Savin Hawthorne, okay? Because she is going to drill down on some of these theses. We got to we got to see what she's just going to you know use the term wrecking ball. All right, Danielle, come in here, wreck our macro theses here. We want to hear what you got to say from across the pond. Hi guys. Well, I actually want to bring it back to what you talked about stagflation just there because I find mm. it really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, these inflation pressures are coming in. Uh, is growth getting there? I don't know. I mean, we've had some conflicting data. Consumer confidence is a little bit rocky. Here on our side of the pond, we've got the furlough scheming and ending in the UK. What does that mean for employment? We've got issues with energy crisis. I mean, we've got production line stops in China. We've got issues with gas. We've got issues with oil prices. So, is this really just a case of we are seeing growth and these expectations are pushing up these inflation differentials? I mean, five-year inflation differentials in the UK, highest level since before 2008. Mm-hmm. What does this have to do with all these issues and supply bottlenecks and, and constraints that we're seeing? I don't know what you guys think, but I think you know, stagflation is definitely a term that may stick around a little bit longer. Yeah, I agree with that. And we've talked about it. Danny Moses, who does our podcast with us, has talked about it a number of times. You're starting to hear more and more people on CNBC bring it up. And clearly, uh, the elements are there for it. It's just a question of how does it manifest itself? And again, I said earlier, and I'll stand by this, you know, the Fed has a lot of uh, arrows in their quiver, but I don't think there are arrows in the quiver that can combat this. And we'll see. But I think what you really wanted to talk about, again, the, the mother of all the charts continues to be not only yields, but the dollar. And here we are. You know, Dan and I talked about it. You brought along your chart. We're right mm-hmm. up against levels that it appears as though we want to break through to the upside, Daniela. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely here at a yearly high. In fact, since I sent this chart a few hours ago, we've actually broken through this level that I'd marked here. Um, so this is an area between 9340, 9370. It's an area that was very interesting. Keeping an eye on this. We've tried to break above it a few times this year, but also we have this ascending trend line support that you can see marked down there. And that's really interesting because every time we're bouncing off of this area, we get that significant push. So we are at a time here that just dollar seems extremely bullish. And I mean, that's influencing every single pair that you're looking at. And if we go into the next chart, that's, I believe, the dollar yen chart. And I do have to say, technically, this chart was screaming to me it was going to meant to go lower. We had this set up, I talked about this before, I think a few weeks ago, where we had these theories of higher highs and lower lows. So we were expecting this symmetrical pattern to break down below that support area that was marked there. But looking at the dollar, looking at the yen, and just 
thinking about carry trade and central bank interest rates mm-hmm. and expectations over the coming months and this hawkish um, FOMC meeting we had, it just looks to me that this is a repeat of the first quarter of the year. I don't know if you guys agree, but just look at that from the beginning of 2021 till about that April when we saw yields picking up. Look at that uh, dollar yen chart. So am I thinking, is this going to be the same situation now? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I would submit, again, this to me, it looks remarkably like that Russell chart, that small cap index chart that we put up. And why do I say that? Because it's a, it's a complacency thing to a large extent. It's also trying to figure out what what does it want? What does, in this case, dollar yen want, right? Does it want higher yields, lower yields? Um, is this a flight to risk? I mean, we talk about it all the time in terms of what the yen represents. I would submit the following. We're about to find ourselves in a new paradigm or new trading levels for all of these things. I would submit, um, correctly or incorrectly, in terms of dollar yen, it's higher. And in terms of the Russell, it's lower. But that's what they say makes markets, Daniela. Yeah, I mean, that's what the chart's telling us. And realistically, if you look at the, uh, you know, the Japanese Central Bank and what are your expectations on that and their inflation um, targets, they've always been below it. I mean, so realistically, the, the Japanese Central Bank has little to offer, whereas the Fed still has so much more in their pocket. And that's what markets are expecting. We could have some disappointment down the line, and this is the pair that you're probably looking at if that comes. But with expectations of what you've seen in the last meeting and going into November and a possible taper and then pricing in a possible rate hike in 2022 earlier than we first forecasted. This to me just looks like a perfect bullish chart for the, for the dollar, um, definitely in the medium long term. But as you said, it might be a situation where we have to see where this takes us and we have to kind of redefine and rediscover the rhetoric and the narrative behind this pair and what it means in this new environment of rising yields and, and stagnating central banks. A completely different economy uh, is obviously what's going on in Europe, specifically what's going on in Great Britain. And we have the pound here. Again, I would submit here we are at critical support levels, um, remarkably similar to that dollar yen chart, only in reverse. What is this telling you here? Yeah, I mean, the pound today has been probably one of the uh, biggest trades to look at. It's just been getting absolutely smashed throughout the morning. Um, it's even, again, dropped below this area that I marked here. This was the 23.6% Fibonacci around 1.3577. That was the area I was looking for support. It's actually broken down below that. And I think, again, trying not to be dollar biased, but the setup here is just screaming, again, that bearish reversal on the on the pair, on the pound against the dollar. The thing is here is I feel like markets have set themselves up for disappointment with the Bank of England. I don't know if you guys follow that much, but uh, money markets are pricing in a 15 basis point rate hike by February 2022. And I think it's uh, rates to be up about 0.5% by June. Um, there's not much wiggle room in that. And as I was saying, we have a lot of issues in the UK at the moment. We have the end of furlough here at the, uh, the end of this month, this week, actually. And I think the Bank of England needs that time to try and determine what does this mean. We're expecting unemployment to shoot up. That's a no-brainer. But how high and for how long? And I feel like mm-hmm. you don't want to really tap your fingers in a situation like that where you don't know what's going to happen. So pricing in a 15 basis point hike, fully priced in by February, is quite bullish for me in terms of this hawkish message from the BOE. So it feels to me like the pound has set themselves up for disappointment. We also have Brexit dragging along after the pandemic everyone kind of forgot about brexit now it's brought back in i don't know if you guys have been following but you have a better chance of finding a bitcoin on the floor than getting petrol in the uk right now because all the all the gas stations are completely you know bent up so we have all these issues with supply and with demand coming in 
post-Brexit. And it just seems to me that the pound has set itself up for disappointment. And we might get a little bit of a bounce here. But again, pricing in that hawkishness in the dollar compared to all the hawkishness that's already been priced into the pound. I think this, again, is a trade that's very interesting to look at with, um, you know, with dollar and pound and direction of, of yields and, and bank, central banks. And then just to finish it off, uh, Bitcoin chart. I wanted to bring this along. Uh, I find it very interesting for me. It's the fact that Bitcoin has stayed above that $40,000 line. We see China kind of clamp down and crack down on cryptocurrencies. It's not the first time. Do you really, you know, is, do markets take this seriously? I mean, China's been trying to regulate markets and regulate different currencies for so long. But the fact that China seems to have gone full on with this and actually ban any cryptocurrency mining and any trading in the country. Yeah. And Bitcoin has stayed above that $40,000 for me. It's a pretty British signal. Again, Bitcoin being adopted as like systems of payments and all that just makes it a lot more mainstream. So it is yeah. a lot more affected and influenced by um, other factors, just regular economic factors where it wouldn't have been 10 years ago if you were looking at Bitcoin. But for me, staying above that 40000 when China was coming down hard, that's a pretty brilliant yeah. signal for me. I don't know what yeah. you guys feel. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Daniela. And, you know, you're, that 40,000 level or where we are right now is very near when we had that flash crash a few weeks ago on a Tuesday. And so both, um, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of below those levels. But I agree with you. I think they're really psychologically important um, when you see a quick move like that. But we talked about this just a little bit ago when we were talking about gold. It's my belief that incremental buyers towards scarce assets, if you will, that should hold a store of value given what's going on, let's say, with rates and central banks and quantitative easing and money printing, I think goes to Bitcoin for now. I think the fact that it's a trillion dollar asset or a $2 trillion ecosystem and crypto assets in general kind of helps make that case. So I, I like your, your charting here. Um, you know, what I will find really fascinating, if things were to get ugly here in the stock market and rates were continue to go higher and maybe some things got sloppy in the commodity space, Let's see how Bitcoin acts. It has been that kind of inflation hedge right now, for now. Gold has not. So let's see how that acts. And the last thing I'll just say, you mentioned earlier, um, if you find anywhere where you can find a Bitcoin on the floor, please let Guy and I know. We will fly over on the Concord and help you pick them up off the floor, okay? Um, That's how bad it is. Yeah. Well, I love that. That was a brilliant analogy. I'm surprised Guy didn't fall off his chair on that one. But you know what? <laughs> Tune in to CNBC's Fast Money tonight. He may use that on the show. Um, listen, Daniela, you've been amazing. We love having you on here. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for drilling down on some of those kind of themes in the macro markets that we're talking about and drilling down on those charts. You are a far better technician than Guy and me. We kind of use him as a crutch, don't we, Guy Nami? Absolutely. And at my age, you need it, Dan. And I'll say this. Uh, if I do use that tonight on Fast Money, I'll give an HT or maybe I'll even give a hat tip to Danielle. We're indebted to IG, Nadex and Daily FX for many things, not least of which the introduction they gave us to Danielle. So thank you for joining us, Dan. Nathan from the Code Conference on yeah. the West Coast, thank you for joining us. Today's macro setup was brought to you by our presenting sponsors. Dan, get ready. Uh, IGUS, they're one of the fastest growing Forex deals in North America. Of course they are. And Open Exchange, Dan, this is your cue. They manage yeah. virtual meetings. What? That matter for the top companies everywhere. I'll see you Tuesday of next week when it'll be October. Have a great day. Have a good one.